Well, it's good to see everyone this morning. As you grab your seats, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the book of Exodus. And as you do, I want you to know that uh, for your 2018 giving uh, statements, they are available. Uh, Brian, Gash, Nicole Cook will be out the front table with those. If you have not gathered them already, um, you can grab those uh, immediately after the service. But as uh, for our business at hand today, we're in week three of our journey through this foundational book of Exodus. And, and like I've said already, if you want to have a fuller, if you want to have a richer understanding of the gospel, you have to have a healthy understanding of the book of Exodus. Let's be honest. Most professing Christians do not have a, a healthy understanding or an understanding of the book of Exodus. Again, they will know certain stories, that the, the big stories, the, the parting of the Red Sea, the, the burning of a bush, and those type of stories, the plagues and those things. But most people do not have a, a real healthy understanding of Exodus and how it fits into uh, the overall redemptive story of the Bible. Well, that's one of the reasons that we're going through this book together. But I want you to think about the context of, of those that we're reading about today. The context of these early Israelites enslaved in Egypt for this 400-year period of time. Remember, they, they have no Bible. Why do they not have a Bible? Because one hasn't been written yet. Like it doesn't exist. Not even one book ha has yet to be written. So the early, these early Israelites, their knowledge of God um, exists from a couple facets, but very minimal. One, it's general revelation. General revelation being how God has revealed himself to us through his creation. Like we can look out in creation, we can understand our own sense of morality and realize we're not here by accident, that there is a purpose, there is a plan, there is a creator. All people all over the world understand this, whether they admit it or not. There is a creator. But their understanding of God was also specific and special in the sense that God had revealed himself verbally and spoken to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and revealed himself to them. Now, what he revealed to them was then passed on through the generations of this family tree on the way down um, to where they're at today, some 400 plus years later. But all that to say, there's no Bible scholars at this point. No, no Bible scholars in modern day or this period of, of Israel. So, I say all that again, if, if you're feeling like you're biblically ignorant and thinking, I just don't know about this book, I don't know a lot about God, you likely know way more about God and the Bible, because they didn't have a Bible, uh, than these modern day, these the early Israelites here. So keep that in mind as we consider the text today of their lack of knowledge of what they had. But beginning in Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that way and seeing no one. Now it could have been that he literally saw no one or what I tend to believe is that he saw no one willing to help this Hebrew in need. Either way, he, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? 
Now, that's not the reaction that Moses was anticipating. That's not the reaction that Moses was looking for, wanting, expecting, any of those things. But I imagine that there was some resentment that had been built up from the Israelites against Moses. Why? Because Moses is living in Pharaoh's home with all the benefits of being a child in Pharaoh's home. They're not. They're slaves. Their circumstances are radically different. So they're saying, who are you to be the judge of us? But then Moses was afraid and, and thought, surely the, the thing is known. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now, a couple things here. The land of Midian is in the Sinai Peninsula. So south of modern day Israel, east of Egypt and the northwestern part of Saudi Arabia. But for those of you who know nothing about geography, none of that makes any sense to you at all. Um, but for those of you who do, it kind of gives you a picture of where we're at. But the Midianites, this is a really complicated one. The Midianites are descendants of who? Midian, right? Real complicated. The Midianites, they come from Midian, who was one of Abraham's sons from his second marriage, who was to Keturah after Sarah had died. So after Sarah dies, Abraham remarries. He marries Keturah. They have some children, one of which is Midian. And then he, of course, fathers the Midianites. So like Israel, they are likely a monotheistic people worshiping one God, but again, with very little knowledge, only what that has been passed down and likely experiencing a lot of, a lot of pagan influence as well. But here's a little interesting fact. At least I find it to be a little interesting fact. It could just be the nerd in me popping out. But it was the Midianites who sold Joseph to Potiphar 400 years prior um, into Egypt. So you got the Midianites selling Joseph to Potiphar, entering into Egypt, and now it's the Midianites who God uses to give a place of refuge to Moses as he's about to lead the people out of Egypt. You begin to see how God is working all these different pieces of the story together for his good and for his glory. And I love seeing how it kind of all begins to come together. But now look at the last part of verse 15 there. And he sat down by a well. And I know it's easy to read over a sentence like this and treat it like it's an insignificant detail. And I'm not saying it's the most significant detail in the story or the most exciting detail in the story. Like he sat down by a well, like congratulations. He sat down by a well, and, but it's, it's not insignificant. Just think about the significance of a well in those days. It, it, it equaled life, right? It, it's equaling life, like roads and paths would lead to the well. Travelers are gonna seek it out. It, it's a necessary source of survival in a desert land. But we also see in the Bible how it's a picture of new life. Just think about the woman in, that Jesus meets at the well in John chapter 4. You know, she comes to the well looking to obtain water for drinking and purposes around the house. And she leaves experiencing the living water that is only found in Christ. Experiencing a new life. And in a sense, that's kind of what we have here as well, as Moses is about to begin a new life in Midian, leaving the riches of Egypt and all that is, that is accompanied with being a son in Pharaoh's home to become a nomadic shepherd in Midian. So I talk about a change in lifestyle. 
start thinking about that and start thinking about all the gospel parallels that are preparing us for what is to come. Just look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. I think of that, and I'm reminded of the Son of God leaving the riches of heaven to identify with the people that he came to redeem. There's so many gospel parallels. There's so many gospel truths that it's pointing our mind to. We, we don't have time to camp there long, any longer. But the story continues in verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to, to water their father's flocks. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Again, what Moses is doing here is he's attempting to redeem those he sees being oppressed. And in fact, this time he proves to be successful. So verse 18, when they came home to their father rule, also known as Jethro, he said, how is it that you have come home to so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and water the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So Moses has come to the well, and now Moses has started a new life in Midian. He has taken a wife named Zipporah and has had a son that he has named Gershom. I guess there could be worse names to name your kid, but... He names him Gershom, which means a sojourner there, because he himself had been a sojourner, a stranger in a foreign land. Got to love how they choose to name their kids in the day. Now, can you imagine what you would have been named if you lived back then? Now, whether he's referring to Egypt or Midian where he sojourned, it really does not matter. Just consider the life of Moses for a moment and what we've seen thus far, his life. Think about the, the spiritual and emotional condition that he's in at this point. Like he, he tried to deliver his people from the Egyptians, but that failed, did it not? He killed the Egyptian and then had to, to flee for his life, which means he also failed as a citizen of, of Egypt. He had the education, he had the wealth, everything going for him, but that failed. That, that's no more. He identifies with a Hebrew as a Hebrew, rightfully so, but the Hebrews don't identify with him. So he's a failure there. And now he's fled to a foreign land and he's living among the Midianites. There's nothing about Moses that is saying, hey, yep, this guy right here, he's going to be the guy who's going to deliver Israel from slavery. This guy, man, he is the boss. He is the leader. He is the guy who's going to be Charlton Heston and walk in and lead everybody out of, of Egypt. This is it right here. It's not there. But there's two things I, we need to see here in this text. The first being that at this point in Moses' life, he is not ready to lead God's people out of Egypt. He's not ready. He desires to, but he's not ready yet. I can relate to that. 
can relate to that all too well. Really desiring to do something, even feeling called to do it. And God's saying, not yet. Not yet. Just wait. And two, second thing, God's people aren't ready to be led out of Egypt yet. Flip over to Acts chapter 7, verse 23. Flip over there, Acts chapter 7, verse 23, keeping your finger in Exodus chapter 2. We're in Acts chapter 7, we have Stephen's sermon, where he takes a full paragraph to talk about, of all things, Moses killing the Egyptian. Verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came to his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. He's speaking about Moses here. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that, what, that God was giving them salvation by his hand. Like, hey, I'm doing this, and I'm going to lead you out of Egypt. This is what is going to happen. Aren't you going to understand this? But what happens? They don't understand. They don't understand. Moses is doing this with his own efforts and his own intention. Like, I'm going to deliver you here, and they don't understand. It doesn't happen. Ultimately, what happens? Moses flees to Midian. Why? Because he wasn't ready to lead them out of Egypt yet. God wasn't done preparing him yet. And neither were the Israelites ready to be led out. There's multiple aspects of preparation that are taking place here. Now, it's Acts chapter 7 that tells us that Moses remains in in Midian for 40 years. And I thought seminary took a long time. But that's nothing compared to 40 years of preparation. Like 40 years. I'm not even 40 years old yet. I can say that now because like next month I turn 40. But that's my entire life. My entire life that he has spent in preparation to lead them out of Egypt. And how guilty are we of thinking a few months or a few years or a season of trial whether it's school or a life trial and season, they're like, man, it's it's just so long. It is. 40 years. That doesn't even count the 40 years of preparation that took place while he was growing up in Egypt, those first 40 years of his life. He's waiting until he's 80 to be used here in this moment. Now think about the Hebrews. Well, we're talking 400 years of preparation, generation after generation coming and going they're being prepared for what's to come. And I look at this and I'm like, you know what? God has a way of doing that, doesn't he? God has a way of doing this. God, God preparing us through seasons of, of waiting and trial and intentional preparation for what he has us to do. Seasons of refining and seasons of learning and growing that we honestly wish. <laughs> I wish this wouldn't take so long, God. Can you, can you speed this up a little bit? Can, can we move this along a little bit faster? Can I, I, my time is now. Can we, can we do this? We, we've, we've all felt that way, but, and we're not alone. I mean, I, I, I look at this. Yes, I'm thinking from a ministerial con- context, but you're speaking, thinking of it from all other types of contexts. But you look at Paul. He gets saved, comes to faith in Christ, miraculous way, right? Meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. Like, what's he want to do naturally there? I want to go tell people about Jesus, And what happens? He has three years in Arabia before he is allowed to continue on in his teaching ministry. 
three years of preparation, three years of waiting. Even Jesus himself is 40 days in the wilderness before his ministry begins. You see, the disciples, they have three years of walking with Jesus in their preparation. Application to be gleaned from this, sometimes it takes a long time for God to prepare us for the task that he has for us. Just think about barbecue for a moment. Total awesome segue, right? You're thinking, what does barbecue have to do with any of this? And why would you bring barbecue up right before lunch? Like, in what way is that a good idea? See, I love barbecue. Lived, like, the last six years prior to coming here in Memphis, Tennessee. Absolutely love barbecue. Love to eat barbecue. Love to make barbecue, whether it's pulled pork, whether it's ribs on the rack, or a nice brisket. Love it. And the rule of thumb with smoking barbecue is low and slow. Do I have any other barbecue smokers out there. Got to be careful with how you use the word smoking. But, all right, so you understand where, where I'm coming from here. If you hear me say the word smoking, I'm referring to meat on, on this sense, right? But the rule of thumb with smoking barbecue is low and slow. It takes time to get it right. And the most frustrating part about smoking barbecue can be the stall. The dreaded stall. It's when the meat gets around 160 degrees and, and it just stops. Like you're rolling along, day's going great, and you're like, meat's just climbing, and all of a sudden, 160, 155, somewhere in there, and it just stops and even starts to decline, and you're like panic mode. Like, wife said dinner's at 5.30, and I've told her this is going to be ready, and what am I going to do? I've got to speed this up, and all, all these things that are going through, and you're thinking, okay, how am I going to do this? But what's happening during that time of that stall is the fat is starting to break down and the meat is kind of doing this refining process that gives it its taste of perfection. It's like, mwah, moment. Like that, that's what's working out in this moment right here. And if you rush it by like turning up the heat or you take it off too early, meat's not gonna turn out right. Sure, it will be edible. You cook something long enough, it's gonna be edible, Right? But it may even be good, but it's not going to be smack your mama good. <laughs> and I want my barbecue to be smack your mama good. That's the way I want it. It won't be the way it's intended to be. So what do you do? You patiently wait. Sometimes a long time till you get that perfect temperature and then it's ready. And you know what's really frustrating? Every piece of meat is different. So you finally get it's like, okay, I know what I'm doing. I know how this is going to go. And then you go and you do it the next Friday night or whenever it is. And so I'm going to be ready by this time. And it either goes faster or it goes slower. Everything is different. Every situation is different. And so are we. And so are our situations. So are our seasons of preparation. And yes, I just compared everyone in here to a piece of meat. <laughs> But I think you get the point. Don't think that God is wasting your time when life isn't going the way you planned. Don't think that God is wasting your time when life is not going the way you planned. He does not work on our time table. He does not work in our ways. But if you are a child of God, he is working for you. He's working for you. He is preparing you in this season, and he's also preparing 
those he will have you to minister to as well. Just look what happens. Verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So what happened? God's people cry out to God for help. The king of Egypt here has, has died, which would lead us in a humanistic understanding to think that their deliverance may come through a new king. New king, maybe he's going to let people go, but that's not what happens. Things get worse. Deliverance is only going to come one way. How is that going to be? By the hand of God. But both Moses and the people of Israel have to be prepared to realize that. Because when Moses attempted to deliver them 40 years prior, they weren't ready, were they? And neither was he. But what happens 40 years later? What happens after this 400-year period of slavery? They begin to cry out to God. Now, the natural question is, why did it take you so long? Like, could you not have done this after year 250? Could you not have done this after year 100? Why did it take so long? And the same question could be said for us individually, collectively, as a country, as a people. But the answer here is because whatever knowledge Israel had of God, minimal or not, during their time in Egypt, they had begun to drift away from God. Ezekiel tells us that they had adopted the idols of Egypt. They were not a people who loved the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength. In fact, other than their ethnicity, they had begun to blend into the customs and the practices that were surrounding them uh, in their culture. But what we see in this text and through this story is a display of God's patience. God patiently waiting to redeem his people just as he promised. But waiting waiting until they learned to cry out to him. So while they had drifted away from him, God is patiently drawing them back to himself through the circumstances of their suffering. Maybe your story today, which brings about an important question, important question that we need to think about regarding God's patience with us. What will it take for us to cry out to God? What will it take for you to cry out to God? What will it take for us as a church? What will it take for us as a country to cry out to God? How bad do things have to get before we cry out to God for help? Not, not just complaining about what we're seeing in the news headlines, not complaining and pointing fingers, but when are we going to stop looking for deliverers on this earth and look to Christ Look to God and to cry out him to him as our only hope in life and in death. Because remember, God is a patient God. Praise God that he is a patient God, but he is also a jealous God. He is a jealous God. He is not content to be treated as a last resort. And thus, again, I'm glad he is patient. He will patiently let us exhaust all of our efforts, throw all of our temper tantrums, try to do everything we can on our own and wait, wait for our groaning and our cries for help. 
But here's what we need to understand. Even our groaning and our cries are evidence of God's work in us. See, before God freed his people from slavery, he prepared their hearts through their circumstances to cry out to him in prayer. Meaning before we even have the urge to pray, God is preparing our hearts to pray. Now, the second thing we see is that when we cry and when we pray, we can have confidence that God hears the cries of his people. Look at verse 23, the people cry out to God and, God and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. Now, I know there are times when it feels like God doesn't hear our cries. Feels that way, doesn't it? Doesn't hear our groaning, but I assure you he does. He may not respond in our timing or the way we would like, but he always hears and he always answers our, our prayers. Sometimes it's with a yes, sometimes it's with a not now, and sometimes it's with a no. But it's through the prayers of God's people that God fulfills his providential plans. It's through the prayers of God's people that he fulfills his providential plans. Just look back at Genesis chapter 15 and the promise that God made to Abraham before he even had one child. We looked at this in week one of the series. We'll look at it again here as a reminder. But verse 13, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring, offspring he hasn't had yet, will be sojourners in the land, that'll be Egypt, that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So it's God who draws them into Egypt. Again, remember the story of Joseph being sold by the Midianites and the famine that took place later. Why? Why all of this? To preserve them and grow them and prepare them for what lies ahead. And then it's God who draws them out 400 years later. Why? To fulfill the purpose of his plans. To fulfill the promises that he made. But what is the means of having his promises fulfilled? Through the prayers of his people. Through the prayers of his people. Notice I said through. And not because of. But through, not because of, these prayers, our prayers, are not a work that earns God's favor, but a tool that God uses to fulfill his providential plan. And you think about that, God allowing us and using us to work in his providential plan. Do I have that all understood? Nope. <laughs> but I see it in scripture and I'm trusting it in scripture. Just like we're not saved because of our faith, but by grace, through faith, we are saved through Christ alone. Our prayers are not a work. They are a result of what God is doing in our lives. So think about that in terms of God's promise in Revelation. That there will be a people gathered around the heavenly throne from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. A promise that is guaranteed to come to fruition. We look at our world, though, and the vast lostness that we see, whether it's the news headlines, our, our cultural setting, our own family dinner tables, we look and see how in the world is this going to come to fruition? The answer, through the prayers of God's people. 
See, you're a Christian today if you are a Christian because someone first prayed for you. Whether by name or not does not matter. You were dead in your sin, separated from Christ, and someone or multiple someones prayed to God that he would open your eyes to see the truth, that he would bring you from spiritual death to life in Christ. And God heard their prayer, heard their cries, and he quickened your heart to believe. He gave you faith. There's no work in that of yourself. It is totally by the grace of God. But why did he hear their prayers? Why did he answer their prayers? Because, number three, God remembers his promises. God remembers his promises. We see in verse 24, after God hears their groaning, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. But notice what he doesn't remember. Their sin. He doesn't remember their sin. Remembers his covenant, not their sin. Now, I think covenant is one of those hard words to define sometimes, at least in our mind. Like, what exactly is that? I think the best definition actually comes from the Jesus Storybook Bible written by Sally Lloyd-Jones. God's covenant with his people being a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. So when God's people cry out to him for rescue, he remembers his promises and he keeps his promises. It doesn't mean that God forgot his promises. It's not in any moment saying God forgot. God, God wasn't like 400 plus years later being like, oh, thanks for reminding me. I had forgotten about that. that that's not what's taking place here. No, it, it means that God's saving his people here is based 100% upon his covenant, upon him on his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Nothing else. His promise being fulfilled is based 100% on his covenant. See, the circumstances of God's people, they don't make him a compassionate God. He already is. The groans of God's people do not make him a loving God. He already is. And the cries of God's people don't make him any more loving than he already is. But what has God been doing? Patiently waiting and working in the lives of his people until they realized it. So melting the fat and tenderizing the meat, preparing them for complete dependence on him. So see this. Before they ever cry out to God, God was already at work preparing them to cry. Already at work. And God's response to their cries wasn't based in any way on them, but completely on the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God. And the same applies to each and every one of us. If we are in Christ, our salvation is based on nothing that we have done exclusively by the grace of God that we have received by faith in Christ alone, through faith in Christ alone. But here's where we're at. The people have cried out to God. And that's followed by four verbs completely centered and focused upon God. Moses' name here is nowhere to be found in these last few verses. One, we saw that God heard their cries. Two, he, he remembered his promise. 
Three, we're not going to make it a separate point, but the first part of verse 25, he saw his people, looks upon them with compassion and because of his covenant with them. Not because of their, because of his covenant. And then four, what was the last two words of verse 25? Or what are the last two words of verse 25? God knew. God knew what? I mean, you read it and God knew what? He knew their plight. He knew their suffering. He knew their fears. He knew them. The natural question is how? How how does God know my suffering? How how does God know my fear? How, how How does he know that? I mean, yeah, I know he's God, but really, he's God. How does he know my suffering? Well, let me ask you this question. Whose blood secures his covenant? Whose blood secures this covenant? Not the blood of bulls or goats, but the blood of Christ. The blood of Jesus. Just go back and read Hebrews 10 later this afternoon if you get a chance. So when God says he, he knew their suffering, he does he knows way better than we can ever begin that he understands. He, know, he knows just as he knows yours. He knows. He knows more about suffering than any of us will ever begin to understand. Don't want to understand the likes of suffering that he understands, which is a reminder also that his love is greater than we can ever begin to comprehend. That he would suffer intentionally on our behalf to redeem us from our sin to make us a child of God. So whatever season you find yourself in this morning, realize it's a season of preparation. God has not changed. He will not change, but he is changing you. He's changing you for your good and he's changing you for his glory. It could be that he, right now he's preparing you to cry. He's preparing you to cry out to, to him. It could be that you have been crying for a while. But whatever God is doing, understand this. He hears, he remembers, he sees, and he knows. And not only does he know, he is making himself known. He has made himself known. And that's where we're going to turn our attention next week. How God has made himself known, and he is here, and he is not silent. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I thank you for your good word. I thank you that you are patient with us. I'm thankful that you hear our cries, that you remember your promises, that you see our afflictions, and you know our our suffering and our pain. But we thank you that the yes and fulfillment of your promises is based nothing in us. Because if it were, we would completely fail. We have and we will. Thank you that your covenant promises find their yes and amen in the shed blood of Christ. Thank you that his death could not contain him and that the grave could not hold him. Thank you that we we serve a living God who is powerful 
and conquering over sin and death. Lord, we thank you. And today, as we we close out this time of, of studying your word, Lord, I pray that it will spur us to, to be and mindful to be a people who are desperate for you, a people who are crying out to you, a people who are, are seeing you as our only hope in life and in death. Lord, today, if there be anybody here who does not know you as Lord and Savior, who is not treasuring you, Lord, we pray that today that they will repent and believe that you will bring them from spiritual life to death. And those who are in seasons of, of, of preparation, as we all are, but ones that are, feel like they're in the, the firing pan, Lord, I pray that, Lord, that you will bring them out and you will use them for, for your glory. But while they're in it, Lord, I pray that you'll help them to persevere for your glory. In all of these things, Lord, we pray that you are glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.